Isaiah 9, 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises up the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows might be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners, or fall, along the, fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger! The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few, for he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened a mouth or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? 
or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in the sight of our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. What do you think about God's wrath? Skeptics think it presents quite a problem for Christianity. After all, how can God be good when he's so regularly talking about wrath? Maybe the New Testament God talks about love and grace, but this God, the God of Isaiah, he seems to be mad a lot. What do you think? Is it true? And if it's true, is it a problem? Now, Scripture is clear. God does act out of wrath in the New Testament as well as the Old. But is it a problem? Isaiah doesn't think so. On the contrary, he would go so far as to call it a blessing. To organize my sermons through Isaiah, I've been using the pastor theologian Ray Ortland's commentary just to help me organize the book and figure out where to put the breaks on sermons. And at the 30,000-foot level, he describes chapters 1 through 5 as the spiritual disaster of God's people. And chapters 6 through 11 as the triumph of God's grace over our failure. Now, that sounds like a blessing to me. But that was easy to understand in chapter 6, when God cleansed Isaiah and saved him from apparent destruction. But how in the world do we see God's grace in a series of chapters about judgment? How do we see grace in a series of verses like this morning's, which repeat the refrain, his hand is stretched out still? In the passage, God's wrath is stretched out against both his people and not his people. Israel, the northern kingdom, had rejected his grace. The leaders were living for themselves, encouraging injustice and oppression, and practicing what they preached, not so much for the good. They were utterly indifferent to the law and to the word, to God himself. And now Judah, the southern kingdom, the more faithful kingdom, is following quickly behind. The description here of life in that kingdom is not one of holiness. Iniquitous decrees, riders of oppression, turning aside the needy from justice, robbing the poor, victimizing the widows and the fatherless. Syria and Assyria, those not his people will be used by God as tools to bring judgment against both kingdoms of Israel. But these are not righteous nations or rulers either. 
God is no more pleased with them than he is with his own rebellious people. They're unapologetic lovers of evil. They're haughty and proud. They're boastful. They are idolaters. When you read the history of the non-Jewish ancient peoples, it's a tale of abominable wickedness. So ask yourself, in light of this, the murderous abominations of the not-my-people crowd and the injustice and the idolatry of the ones who are his people, would it be good for God to simply overlook it all? Would it be good for God to see this evil and do nothing? Are God's hands simply tied because of his goodness? Does the fact that God is love prevent him from caring enough about horrific evil to respond with anything more than harsh words? Isaiah and all of scripture give a resounding no. In this instance, God will use these godless nations as a tool for his own purposes. He will do with them what he wills. Their evil will work in service of his righteousness, his hand stretching out to punish the evil of his own people. And make no mistake, they're not doing anything against their wills. The text says the evil that they want to do, they're getting to do. They're doing exactly as they desire. But nonetheless, in the wisdom and power of God's plan, their wicked choices will be used for the wise and powerful purposes of his wrath. What should strike us as remarkable is that this wrath, his hand is stretched out still. It's actually evidence of his grace. It was the theologian J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, who presented a really helpful definition of God's wrath. God's wrath, he writes, is his active Resolute opposition to all evil. Kids, some of you, especially on the front row, have experienced my wrath. My wrath can be inconsistent, even arbitrary. My wrath can be unreasonable and unjust. The wrath of man can be selfish and vindictive. It doesn't always punish evil. Instead, many times it stretches out its hand against annoyance or what interferes with our plans. This is the wrath of man. It does not produce the righteousness of God. But God's wrath is something altogether different. Another author describes it as a solemn determination of a doctor cutting away the cancer that's killing his patient. And for God, the anger is deeply personal. It's not detached or clinical. It's personal. This doctor hates cancer because he loves the carrier of the disease. And he is intent to rid the universe of all their affliction. God's outstretched hand. His wrath is at work. Destroying every last remnant of sin in this world. 
in those who believe and repent. He's destroying the indwelling sin that remains in our flesh. He's making us perfect and ready for the day of glory. And in those who will not repent, his hand stretches out to condemn those who have finally rejected his grace. Unlike ours, God's wrath is always justified. Look at some of the examples just from this passage. Verses 8 through 10. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build up with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Do you hear what they're saying? God has already brought judgment against them for their sin. He's, he's shaken up their world to try and wake them out of their stupor, to turn them away from the path of evil and of death. And how do they respond to that judgment? Well, God took away my house. I guess I'll build a bigger one. God took away my job. I guess I'll go get a better one. They, they respond in pride and arrogance of heart. What he took away in judgment, they resolve to build back for themselves. They trust in their own strength rather than in his. They experienced wrath culminating in the destruction and captivity of the entire northern kingdom. This is no small sign that God has sent to show his displeasure. And how did God's people respond to that judgment? They doubled down on their own strength. Verse 13 is about the same thing. The people did not turn to him who struck him, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. You hear the pride, the intellectual and spiritual arrogance we know what's best for us. Who needs to turn to God? Brothers and sisters, how many times have we said that in our own hearts? The things that we try have failed. Our efforts are not working. And instead of turning to God, we say, I know what I need. Let me double down on that. Oh, God, forgive us. Verses 14 to 16 make clear that this rebellion started with the leaders. They believed and they taught lies. They taught and practiced godlessness. Verse 17. And the people followed where they were led. Throughout this whole passage, you have cause and effect. Verses 11 and 12. They will build in their own strength. So the Lord will tear them down. Verse 14. They will seek their own wisdom and go their own way. So the Lord will cut them off from his revelation. Verse 17, by injustice and cruelty, they deny compassion, so the Lord will have no compassion on them. Verses 19 to 21, their wickedness and violence burn up the land, so the Lord's wrath will burn against them. God's wrath is nothing like our arbitrary wrath. It is laser and carefully focused to remove the cancer that is sin from his own people and to judge it from the world who will not turn to him. And so to the skeptics who think that God's wrath reveals some problem with his goodness, I would say how little you know about what goodness is. Even from an earthly perspective, God's wrath is fully justified against evil. How much more so from the perspective of heaven? A holy, sinless God who made man for his glory. 
And that man rejects his grace again and again and again. And in doing so, they perform great evil against God and against one another. And I ask you, how could goodness possibly be displayed by everlasting inaction? How could God be good and see the evil that there is because of sin in this world and do nothing? No, by the time we get to chapter 10, where God pours forth his wrath in this series of woes, what should surprise us is that his gracious patience lasted so long. His hatred for sin is perfect. Isaiah, the faithful prophet, gets a a vision of the train of the glory of God and he thinks he's undone. He thinks he's done for immediately. But God patiently waits. The, The sin that he sees in his people must be dealt with. And so he graciously draws himself toward them and they toward he in salvation. And the sin of those who finally oppose him must also be dealt with because to do anything less would mean that God's holiness is something less than perfect. It would mean that God is not good. Isaiah will have more to say about God's wrath in the chapters to come, but two takeaways seem appropriate for this morning. First, God's people are not. None of us should ever take lightly the wrath of God against sin. He will destroy all traces of sin in his universe. Don't you want him to? And when he does, your sin will either be destroyed in Christ and through the spirit of Christ in sanctification and glorification, or you will be destroyed with your sin. The woes that Isaiah pronounces here against unbelief and unrepentance, they're no different from what Jesus proclaims in his earthly ministry. This isn't a father versus son thing or an Old Testament versus New Testament thing. It's a God versus sin thing. And you do not ever want to align yourself on the side of sin. For his hand is stretched out still. We need to hate our sin. Do you pray that? It's a a prayer I was taught to pray at a church many years ago. It's been hard to pray, but it's been very helpful. Lord, teach me to hate my sin. Give me no comfort and refuge in my sin. Make me uncomfortable there. We need to work actively with the Spirit who is putting sin to death in our lives, we need to confess and to repent of our sin frequently and earnestly to God and to one another. And all this means that even the hardship we face because of our own sin, those consequences that we encounter because we've sinned and gone our own way, those are for our good. Those are God teaching us on a small scale What's true in eternity, that the wages of sin are death. We don't want to mess around with this stuff. 
When we ask to be insulated from the consequences of sin, we're asking God to be indifferent, not just to our sin, but to us, to our sanctification. God, don't care if I'm holy. Don't care if I'm conformed to the image of your son. Don't care if I'm ready for the day of judgment. Just let me do what I want to do. How could a good God ever do that? Not to his own people. His hand is outstretched to us. It's outstretched to us in grace, pursuing us even as we resist it and choose our own way instead, calling us to repent and to draw near to him in confession. Second, and hear me very carefully here, we can be cautiously thankful for the wrath of God against his enemies. We have to be. It's the only way we can endure evil and injustice with hope. For now, we see the wicked prosper. For now, we may experience evil in our lives at the hands of God's enemies. The liar may be promoted, the cheater rewarded. But this injustice should not drive us to despair. Of course, God may be pleased to redeem our enemies and call them to himself, our prayer should actually be that our enemies would not ultimately be God's enemies, and instead they, like us, would become trophies of his grace. If we can understand ourselves rightly as sinners in need of a Savior and without hope except but for the work of God, surely we can pray that for our enemies, that they would experience the same grace. Even so, and they, we see examples of it in this morning's passage. It will turn out that some of our enemies are also and will choose to remain the enemies of God. The arrogant and boastful king who trusts in his own hands and forever goes his own way, he will finally kindle the Lord's anger and outstretched hand. And when that hand stretches out, Toward him, he, like his cancerous sin, will be consumed in wrath. The wicked may prosper for a time. This also according to God's purpose. But apart from repentance, their destruction is sure. We take no joy in this. But we must take some comfort. Many of you have been and are suffering at the hands of wickedness. All of us experience that to some extent. But some experience it in significant and pointed and heartbreaking ways. And you need to know, you may be comforted by the fact that God sees the evil of the wicked and that he still stretches out his hand in wrath against him. Those who persecute you and do evil against you are stirring up the wrath of God, which apart from repentance will be poured out on the day of Christ's coming. Now hear me, we must be humble and wise and careful with this hope. But it is a cause of hope nonetheless. Evil deserves wrath. And evil will receive wrath. 
Thanks be to God, the wrath we deserved for our evil was by grace through faith poured out instead on Christ. And therefore, may the Spirit equip and inspire us to pray for that saving grace to work in the lives of people we today count as our enemies and those who do great evil against us. And also thanks be to God because of his holiness and his love for his people. We can trust and be comforted that his outstretched hand will deal with sin and sinners forever. Friends, he is not indifferent. He is good. And his hand is outstretched still.